I'll be reading this morning from Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out, down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Well, good morning, everybody. Okay, if there was ever a moment in the Gospels that was good for like a freeze frame, you're probably wondering how I got here moment. This is it, right? Peter, chest deep in the water. Jesus is standing there on the water. The storm is raging around. This is one I wish the Renaissance masters had captured this scene. I mean, if you, if you just think about it, this is so powerful. Peter, because... It's always Peter is the one in the water. He's reaching out. Jesus is there. I'm thinking this week about the disciples. What are the disciples thinking? You know, the empathetic disciples are probably like, oh no, Peter. The majority of the disciples are probably doing a little eye roll like Peter. Matthew's like, I've got to write this later. I've got to record this. You know, Matthew's the only gospel writer that records this part of the story. Jesus may have walked on water multiple times. We read in all the other Gospels about Jesus walking on the water, but this is the only Gospel in which we read about Peter walking on the water. And it's such an insight into Peter that usually when this passage is preached, it's about Peter. You know, don't take your eyes off Jesus, and if you do, you'll sink, you know, but Jesus will rescue you. That's, that's a great message. But something that struck me this week, this, this story is interesting because of all the miraculous things that Jesus does... There are lots of them that other people do afterwards. So Jesus heals people, his disciples heal people. People still healed today. Jesus does all kinds of wonderful miracles of casting out demons. That continues. His disciples pick that right up where he left off. Nobody ever walks on water after this. This is interesting. For all the miraculous things that have happened in Christian history, nobody's walking on water after this. This is not a story about how to walk on water. If it was, people would be doing it. Jesus says, you will do greater things than these. Somebody would have walked across the Atlantic Ocean or something if that's what Jesus had intended. And it struck me that this story is not about Peter primarily. This story is about Jesus. 
And I'm not just saying that in like a Sunday school way. Like, yeah, I mean, every story is kind of about Jesus tangentially. (laughs) But this story is about Jesus as the central character of the story. In fact, what I want to do this morning is I want to look and see not just what Peter is doing in this story, but what Jesus is doing in this story. What is Jesus doing when Peter is walking on the water? What is Jesus doing when the disciples are out on the boat? What is Jesus doing when Peter is swimming for his life outside the boat in the waves? What is What is Jesus doing in this story? And I think by doing that, we can see that this story actually isn't as much about Peter walking on the waves as it is what we can expect from Jesus when we find ourselves in a storm. What is Jesus doing when you find yourself in a storm? Well, the the first thing is, this is Peter's idea, but Jesus invites him out onto the water, right? This This is so Peter to say, well, if Jesus is walking on the water, if this is really you, he could have thought of a million things to say. If it's really you, when's my birthday? If it's really you, you know, what did we have for dinner last night? If it's really you, Jesus, command me to come out and walk on the water to you. That's what comes to Peter's mind. And Jesus just simply says, okay, come. Just one word. Okay, come. Get out of the boat. Come. Walk on the water to me. I love the, the way that this is recorded in all the Gospels has this almost unexcited, deadpan narration to it. The disciples are fearing for their lives in this storm, and you've got to remember, these are professional fishermen. Several of these brothers have spent their whole life on this very sea of Galilee, which if you go there, you kind of look around and wonder, this, why do they call this a sea of Galilee? It's more like Lake Galilee. That's what we would call it. It's smaller than Lake Eufaula. So they've been on this body of water their entire life. They have been fishermen their entire life. It probably says Zebedee and Sons Fishing Co. on the side of this boat that they are riding on. And yet, there's something about this storm that they are despairing of life. They think that they're going to go down in this storm. And then every one of the gospel writers just plainly says, and then Jesus comes walking on the water. In fact, they put so much more energy into telling us how violent this storm is. The, the verb that Matthew uses to describe this storm is not just what you would use for a raging storm. This is the word that sometimes is translated torment. So when the centurion's servant is lying paralyzed, it says the servant was tormented. Same word used here in this storm. When, uh, When Jesus comes up to the demons and they say, you're the son of God, do not torment us, don't cast us out. That's the same word as this storm. There's something going on in this storm that is more than just winds and waves and a difficult night at sea. But Jesus, in the midst of this storm, invites Peter out of the boat. In fact, he just says, come. Jesus invites him. Peter, of course, does it. It's funny when Peter, when you look at Peter compared to the apostles, he makes the most mistakes by a long shot. He's saying what you shouldn't say, he's doing what you shouldn't do, and in the end, he has the greatest transformation of the disciples. He is the leader at the end, he is a pillar in the church at the end. It's not that he's better than the other disciples, it's just that he comes the furthest, start to finish. And I think there's an insight into that in this story. Jesus is inviting Peter into the atmosphere where he is going to be changed. 
And for all the times that we can all make fun of Peter for doing exactly what you shouldn't do in the moment, it, it reminds me that you can't steer a parked car, right? Peter is the ultimate moving car. And he may not be going in the right direction, but since he is going in a direction, Jesus feels free to shape him and move him and guide him and correct him. So Peter gets out of the boat, he is being shaped, he is in motion, and he's the one that learns about Jesus in the storm. There are other disciples in the boat who don't experience the transformation that Peter does because they're not out with Jesus in the storm. So Jesus, knowing this, invites Peter out. This is a great coachable opportunity, Jesus says. Come on out. There's something else Jesus is doing that is a little bit harder to see in this passage. Jesus, in this whole story, is praying for Peter. Now, how, how do we know this? It doesn't say that in this text. It just says Jesus calls him out. But if, if you back up to what's been going on in this story, Jesus has been up on the mountain praying before this incident begins. And I just want to point out to you this morning that I think the, minist- the prayer ministry of Jesus is one of the most neglected facets of his ministry. We don't talk about Jesus praying all the time because usually, like here, Matthew just puts it subtly in a sentence. He sends the disciples into the boat, go to the other side, he dismisses the crowd, and after he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. That's it. And we so quickly skip over that. But I was doing a little study on Jesus' prayer this week in the Gospels. And especially in the Gospel of Luke, it becomes very clear. Jesus prays before and usually after all the major events in the Gospels. So, for example, Jesus prays all night before he chooses the disciples. You think, of all the people that have ever walked the planet that had good people skills, good EQ, Jesus was up there. He could have picked great disciples by himself, but he spends the entire night praying before he chooses the disciples. Before the transfiguration, he goes up on the mountain and he's praying with the disciples before this happens. Before he teaches the disciples to pray, before the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke it says he had spent time praying and his disciples asked us, how do we pray like that? And he teaches them. Even when Jesus is on the cross. You know, he prays in Gethsemane the night leading up to his betrayal and his arrest, and he doesn't stop praying there. He prays when people are nailing him to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's, that's not just for them. That's a prayer to God. When he's hanging on the cross, he's praying, Psalm 22. He's not just crying out, I've been forsaken by God. He's meditating on and turning over and praying about the deliverance of God that's in that psalm. Jesus prays before and after every big event in the Gospels. And before this event, we find Jesus praying. Isn't that interesting? See, what had happened was Jesus had been with this giant crowd of people, 5,000 people, and that's usually just counting the men in the group. And he's going to feed them all before and after this story. Next week, we're going to talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 and connect it back to the 5,000 before this. And Jesus is understandably exhausted from being around these crowds. So what he decides to do is he decides to get the disciples out of the way, sends them on a boat. It says he makes them 
get in the boat and go to the other side. And then it says that he dismisses the crowds and he goes up on the mountain by himself and it says, then when evening came. So he's dismissed the crowds before evening. Now, in the Jewish mind, evening was late afternoon, dinner time. Whenever the sun starts to go down, that's when evening. When it starts to get a little dusky, that's when evening starts. So Jesus has dismissed the crowds. He's gone up on the mountain, and then evening comes. So he's been up on this mountain from maybe the middle of the afternoon until it says, in the third watch of the night. This is about four in the morning. Jesus decides to go down to the disciples. So Jesus has been praying, give or take, for 12 hours Another thing that I don't know is necessarily instructive, you don't have to do it that way, but imagine Jesus who is Lord over everything, who has this relationship with the Father where what the Father does, Jesus does, and what the Father loves, he loves. What could he possibly be doing for 12 hours in prayer? And we think that we can't squeeze in time to pray. Jesus, for 12 hours, is praying, and we ask ourselves, what is he praying for? What could he have been doing up there on the mountain praying in that moment. Well, we can get even more specific than just Jesus prays for the big events in his life. He actually prays for all the big events in Peter's life in the Gospels. You know, he prays for Peter before he's called, before he calls him as a disciple. He prays for Peter before his great confession, where Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? And Peter spouts off this time the right answer, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus prayed for that. In Luke 22, we find out that Peter, right before he's about to deny Jesus, he says, you know, I'm going to go with you to the grave. He's like, I, I, I will risk my life to be with you. And, and Jesus says to him, Peter, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus prayed knowing that Peter was going to deny him, but he prayed that in the midst of that denial, the Holy Spirit would do something in Peter that would keep him from losing his faith altogether, and that he'd be restored, and Jesus actually restores him. One of the last things he does is he cooks this little charcoal fire breakfast for the disciples, and he brings Peter in, and he restores him, and he says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Shepherd the flock. Here in Luke, he says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And that prayer was actually answered in Peter's life, even though Peter was not fit to lead anybody in the beginning of the gospel. After the resurrection, after he's been a pillar in the church, after he's been a missionary, we read Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 5, as a fellow shepherd, I exhort you, lay your life down for the flock. Shepherd the people. And when you struggle, when you're in a trial, know that you're not experiencing something unique. God is actually going to come, and he's going to strengthen you, and he's going to build you up, and he's going to fortify you so that you will be able to stand in the time of trouble. Amen. See, Peter, Peter learned that lesson the hard way. Peter learned that in an experience just like this. Here, Jesus isn't praying about the end. I think Jesus is praying for the moment that's about to occur with Peter. He's praying that Peter's faith would not fail in the storm. What's also interesting about this is Jesus, it says, if you look back at the text, it says, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus is up praying, but 
He's, before that, when evening comes, he's there alone, and, and the boat is a long way from land. The, the path across the Sea of Galilee at this point is maybe three and a half or four miles where they are. And they're maybe two-thirds of the way or three-quarters of the way across. They're actually pretty close at this point, we find out in, in Mark and in John. And Jesus, it says in Mark, can see the boat. And he can see, because this mountain that they're talking about looks right over onto the Sea of Galilee. And so they may not be able to see Jesus, but he's up there. He can see the progress they're making, and then when the storm comes up, what they're not making. And it's interesting to me that Jesus is up there praying, and he sees the storm roll in on the plains, and he doesn't pray, Lord, would you just prevent this storm? He doesn't even pray when he's up there, at least we don't find out, that he says something like, calm the storm so the disciples can get across the way. See, Jesus is constantly doing things in the Gospels where if it were you or if it were me, we would do something totally different. I would just get rid of the storm. That's what I would do. Or I would just pray that, you know, there was never a storm to begin with. Actually, I would just make sure there weren't any storms from here on out if I was Jesus. But Jesus does something different. He sees the storm, he prays for Peter, and then he walks down in the storm to be with the disciples. It's, it's funny you notice that throughout this whole story, the storm's going on. You kind of forget that as you're reading this text, but Jesus praying and walking and being with Peter and being outside the boat, all that is happening, and the storm is still raging around the disciples. Because Jesus understands that him praying for Peter in this opportunity is of far greater value than there being no storm. Do you realize that? That the way that God has designed the world is, it's actually furthering God's purpose in your life to have Jesus intercede for you and pray for you and be with you during the storm. That is better for us than for there to be no storm and for us to be by ourselves. It's the power of being prayed for. Most of you you know the power of being prayed for. You know what it's like when you're going through something and people are praying for you. It makes a world of difference in how you endure through what's going on. Not, not just because of the effects of their prayer, but the relationship of having somebody pray for you. A few years ago, I've told some of you, some of you this, but a few years ago I started getting texts on my phone in this group text that I didn't remember getting in. And they would be like texts like, Hey, prayer ladies... We're praying this week because Glenda's got that surgery coming up. And so for a while, I would just kind of be like, I don't really want to say anything in here. I don't know any of these numbers. I don't know any of these prayer ladies. But I am finding this mildly interesting. So, you know, we're planning potlucks. We're praying for people. We're, you know, talking about verses that are on our hearts. And pretty soon, I just start sitting in the little prayer hands, you know? Somebody's praying for Lois. Prayer hands, Lois. You know, I'm, I'm there. I'm praying. And pretty soon, you know, I'm, I'm liking the text. I'm kind of involved with this group now. I'm like, hey, anybody heard about Lois? What happened with the surgery? Anybody got an update? And for like four months, I'm in this prayer group. Never met these people. Never blew my cover. Just prayed. And it was amazing. I was like kind of attached to it after a while. Because the whole point is, like, when you start praying for people, it doesn't really matter what else you have in common or don't have in common. All that matters is you're going to God on their behalf, and God is doing things in their life, and now you're a part of it. And it's amazing to think that Jesus is willing to enter into a relationship like that with us. 
that Jesus is willing to pray on our behalf. Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest, the one who goes and makes a sacrifice for us, is also one who intercedes for us all the time. And his intercession is actually better than our intercession because we don't always know what to pray for. In fact, sometimes we pray the wrong things for people. Like if that prayer was answered, God is saying, you wouldn't believe how bad that would be. But Jesus, it says, always prays according to the will of God. Jesus is praying for Peter that his faith would not fail in this storm. The next thing, he goes to the disciples. This is where we always talk about this story. He's walking on the water. He's there with the disciples. He's there with Peter. And here's, here's what Peter understands that the disciples miss. He gets this. Moses got this. Joshua got this. David got this. The great people of the faith understand this. It's better to be wherever God is than wherever looks like a good place to be. Okay? In this story, it looks like a good place to be in the boat. That is the best place to be. Peter gets something that all believers get when you've walked through a storm like this. It's better to be with Jesus. And so Peter, when Jesus invites him out, he, he understands that contrary to what you would think, it's better to be out of the boat in the storm with Jesus than to be in the boat out of the storm without Jesus. It's better to be out there. So Peter, he goes in there and, and he's walking to Jesus and it's working for a while, which is amazing. You know, you can read this story as an allegory of the Christian life. Right, that every person at some point is called out of the boat. Out of the boat would then be conversion. You know, you're, you're called out of your comfort zone, out of what you've always known, out of what you've grown up with, to be with Jesus. That's, that's a viable way to read this story is there is a call coming to you, coming to me, that you may have answered or not, to get out of the boat. Jesus is calling every person at some point in their life, get out of the boat, come and follow me. But, but here's, here's the next level. Once you get out of the boat, it's not smooth sailing. Right? This is, I was talking to a pastor friend in Eufaula, and they had this couple who, I think it was the, the wife was getting baptized on Easter, this past Easter. It was just this great day. They were doing all these baptisms. It was an awesome Sunday. And like as she goes back and they meet to change clothes and come back to church, the husband realizes his wallet has been stolen. You're like, God, of all the days, you know, <laughs> this person, they're celebrating this spiritual mountaintop, and then you have this inconvenient setback, something to take your eyes off of what you were beholding with Christ. But I hate to tell you this, that's, that's the Christian life. That's it. Like, you become a Christian, you get your wallet stolen. And this is, this is not a sermon on giving. Okay, this is not about giving to our church. That is also a metaphor for what happens in your life. It's not get out of the boat and everything gets better immediately. In fact, what God wants to do in your life is he wants to bring you out into the storm, out of the boat, out of the earthly protection so that he can be all you need. That's his plan for your life. And it's going to be difficult to realize that. Most of us are born with this innate self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of following Christ. So Jesus calls Peter out of the boat, and he is with him. And I can guarantee you in that moment, Peter's faith was not dull as he was out following Jesus. And I, I think sometimes for us, when we're feeling dull, it's time for some time with Jesus out of the boat. It, it, it's time to answer what's been on your heart that God is calling you to do that sounded too crazy, too outlandish, too far-fetched, to is that God or is this just a crazy idea? 
Sometimes those are the moments where Jesus is saying, it's time to get out of the boat. It's time to come out on the waves. It's time to depend solely on him. Jesus is there with Peter through it all. If you think about the details of this story, Peter gets out of the boat, he's walking to Jesus, and he looks down at the waves and he starts to doubt. Jesus calls him a doubter in this story, and he begins to sink into the water. But when he begins to sink into the water, it says Jesus reaches out and grabs him and pulls him up from the water. So the picture you've got to get in your mind is, sometimes I feel like you know Jesus is back there by the doors, and, and Peter's like got this long walk over to Jesus. It's not like that at all. It's like when you have a baby, and you're waiting for them to take steps. We're learning this right now with Davy. You're waiting for them to take steps, and your hands are like right there, but you're waiting for them to take those steps. And there's a trade-off in your mind. When, when a baby's learning to walk and you're giving them just enough space to see if they can take a step, there's a risk involved with that. That, you know what, they may fall, but we'd rather they learn to walk than they never fall. That's the principle. And nobody's going to be like, you are such a negligent parent for letting your child do that. <laughs> no, you would be a negligent parent if you never developed that skill and capability in your kids. Now, with Jesus, it's not like that. There's no risk for Jesus. He knows what's going to happen. He knows he will get you through it. He knows what he's going to do to support you, but he's standing there next to Peter like a father with his arms out waiting for his child to take a step. And when Peter falls, he grabs him and pulls him up, and they get into the boat. And here's the last thing that I want you to see about Jesus. It's, it's not just that he was calling Peter, inviting him. It's not just that he was praying for him. It's not just that he was with him, standing next to him. It's that through all of this, Jesus had a purpose for him. Jesus had thought about this. He would prayed about it. He knew what he wanted out of this. He knew what would happen in Peter's heart and in his soul. Jesus is at total peace in this story. Never once do you see Jesus a little bit frazzled in this story. He is at total peace in this story because he knows how it ends. He knows what's going to happen with Peter. He knows what work Peter has to do. He knows that Peter is going to go and shepherd the church and write letters. And he actually knows that Peter's going to be martyred in Rome. He says that at the end of the Gospel of John. He says, John, you may live until I come back. And if you do, that's nobody else's business. But Peter, I know what's going to happen to you. You're going to be taken. You're going to be led somewhere you don't want to go. You're going to be killed, Jesus is insinuating, for me. Jesus knows how it ends. But here's the thing. Until that moment happens, Peter is invincible. And the Bible is, speaks like that a lot. We, we know how the Bible ends. We know what's going to happen. We know our final resting place. We know where we'll be with God. We know how things are going to go with our souls. And Jesus is saying, so, so let me just take care of the intervening time. Keep your eyes fixed on him. He's got a purpose. He's going to make you into someone who can weather the storm when the storm comes. But the most important verse in this story is one that we haven't gotten to yet. It's in verse 33. So Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and takes hold of Peter, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith. That's just one word in the Greek. It's just doubter, you little doubter. Why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. Notice how interesting that is. It's only after all of this occurs that the wind stops. And in verse 33, this is the most important verse in this story. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. It is so easy to get wrapped up into what is God's purpose in this trial. 
What is he going to make me into? I'm going through a sickness. I'm going through a loss. I'm going through disappointment. I'm going through just a spiritual malaise. I just can't get excited about anything that has to do with God. What is God's purpose? What is he going to make me into? And here we get a guarantee. We, we may not know for a while what God is doing in this particular storm. We, we may actually not know until we get to heaven why God allowed this to happen in your life. We are not promised an easy explanation. But there is one purpose that God has for you that is true in the moment, in every trial, and that is when you walk through a storm, the first goal God has for you is your worship. That when you are walking in a storm and you're following God, it is to bring out worship in your life. Have you noticed that God doesn't save people in ways that just add up completely from a human perspective. It's not like, like Laura and I in our quiet time right now are reading the story of Jericho. And because it's such a vacation Bible school story, you kind of just, you, you know, just go over. Like, of course they walk around and then they blow the trumpets. And it's like, they what? <laughs> this is a fortified city. They walk around it in silence like weirdos for six days. And then they blow their trumpets and the place falls down. <laughs> are we supposed to believe this? Yeah, that's, that's exactly how God does things. Because if he had done it another way, it wouldn't have brought about the Israelites' worship. Because it would have been all about them. The Israelites are a mighty conquering army. There's no way you can read that story and think anything but God is the one who did this. God is the one who brought the walls down. God is the one who walked with his people. He's the one who instructed them. And in our stories, sometimes things work out in a way that's like, that just makes sense. But most of the time, God is going to do it in such a way that you look back and you say, only God. That could only be God. That's the way God delivers. That's why he comes down in the midst of the storm to get Peter to walk on the water instead of calming the storm is because at the end, the disciples worship and say, this is the Son of God. They don't say Peter is a great water walker. This is someone we should worship. This is someone we should give ourselves to. This is someone we should bow down and worship. And only then, in that moment, that's when the storm stops, when the disciples begin to worship. So I want to challenge you this morning to think not just about Peter, not about how we can be great walking on the waves. I want you to think this morning about what Jesus is doing for you in the midst of your storm. What is Jesus doing for you? What is he bringing? What is his presence like? What are his prayers like? What is his invitation to you in the storm? It's to make you a worshiper in the midst of the storm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for stories like this that model all the unfaithfulness and doubt and stupidity and all the traits that we are so familiar with. Mm-hmm so that we can see the glory and wonder and saving power of your Son. Father, I know that there are people in storms that are not insignificant, sitting here this morning, Mm -hmm. wondering, what are you doing? Seeing other people where the storm just seems to have stopped and saying, "Why, why don't you stop my storm? So, Father, my prayer this morning is that, like Jesus, you would invite them, pray for them, strengthen them, draw near to them, pull them up out of the waves to show them the mighty, saving power of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion this morning.